and welcome to this special series of Start Somewhere, the, the climate emergency for COP26. And this episode, I'm delighted to, to be joined by someone who is incredible and amazing and is, is really tr- doing trailblazing and much needed work um, in terms of, of the ecology of our planet. And she is the wonderful Jojo Meta, co-founder and executive director of Stop Ecoside International. Hi, Jojo, how are you doing? Really well. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Oh, and, and likewise, I've been looking forward to this so much, I can't even begin to tell you. So thank you for doing it. So as you know, I always ask, you know, how did you get started in life? You know, what were your early influences and passions? Because you know, sometimes they can influence, you know, where we, we end up later on in life. I don't think they necessarily determine entirely who we are as a person, but, you know, there tend to be little tendrils, if you like, little roots that are, that are formed there. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's probably two threads that, that I can sort of see looking back um, that, that have kind of converged in where I am now. Um, and I think and one of them was it was influenced from my mother. She's a singer and a songwriter and a poet. Um, and her inspiration, her deep inspiration has always been the earth and nature. Yeah. So from a very early age, I had that as a kind of, um, I guess, an underlying thread to sort of in the background of my life. You know, we used to go for these walks in you know, the local countryside and she would always be telling me the names of the flowers. And, the, you know, she was an amazing naturalist yeah. um, and and also, you know, wrote, based all of her work on that. So. So, yeah, so that was one thread. Um, and then I think the other was probably about communication because um, I always I was always really into writing and speaking um, and I did languages in my first for my first degree and I worked in travel for my first job. And, you know, there's there was you know, something about language and communication and writing and translation and all of those things. And I suppose in a way in my work now as a spokesperson for this, this work to make ecocide an international crime, you know, I, I suppose I consider it almost a work of translation, even if it's not um, always, you know, it's not necessarily from one language to another, but I speak to so many different audiences and it's about, you know, how to communicate this, this idea in so many different ways. So I think those are probably the two threads um, that, I, that I would draw from, from earlier amazing. in my life. Amazing and beautiful. I love, I love it. I love it. And, you know, so you started out, you did languages, you, you have a very inspirational mother, there's no question of it. And, and, you know, when and how did you kind of find your purpose? I mean, you talked about you started in travel, but, you know, was it a kind of road to Damascus hit over the head experience or, or was it more of a gradual thing for you? Weirdly, I would almost say it was a little bit of both because um, I think that, you know, that thread of, you know, care for nature and the earth was, was, was sort of there underlying. And I was a kind of armchair activist, if I could use that phrase, for quite a long time, you know, writing, you know, letters to MPs or signing petitions, that kind of thing. Um, but there was a particular moment when I sort of got up out of that armchair, if you like, and, and, and actually became a very boots on the ground activist for a while um, yeah. before I moved into this very particular area. Um, and that was, um, I think it was 2013, because I remember because it was my daughter, she was five, and I just discovered about fracking. Um, which is, as you probably know, is this incredibly polluting way and very inefficient way as well of extracting oil or gas from the ground um, by fracturing rock. And when I 
looked at when I looked into it, I remember thinking, this is this is insane. You know, why are we why are we engaging in something this polluting? And I remember talking to my friends and family, and my little girl burst into tears. And she said, Mummy, I don't understand. She said, if they're poisoning the ground, surely they understand they're poisoning themselves. You've got to call them and tell them to stop. And I I remember sort of thinking, well, that's not how much difference is that going to make? And I and I said, I'm not sure if they'll listen to me if I just pick up the phone to these big companies. And she said, well, there must be someone you could talk to. Can't you talk to the voting man? And we'd just been to the local elections and she'd been running around the ballot box while I was you know, putting my crosses in the box. And, and so she said, can't you talk to the voting man? So I found myself with my little daughter and my son, who was even smaller then, um, talking to my MP about fracking. And he was doing all this sort of classic politician thing of dodging all my questions. And I came out of that meeting thinking, that is never happening again. I'm going to inform myself so that I can properly talk about this thing I care about. Um, and, and that's when I started you know, getting involved in the environmental sort of protest community, I suppose. And it was through that that I met the lawyer, Polly Higgins, who I co-founded this uh, Stop Ecoside International with and got much more into the whole sort of legal side and, 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 and all of that. So, so, yeah, a bit of a mixture, I suppose, is the truthful answer. Wow. But I mean, like out of the mouths of babes, right? You know, I mean, just extraordinary. You know? Completely. I mean, you know, I thought, my God, you know, she's five and she can see how nonsensical this is. You know, and she's just drawing those really simple equations. It's like if we're poisoning the ground. We're going to be poisoning ourselves. And I was like, of course, <laughs> you know, I'm being kind of called into responding here and actually doing something. You know, this is going to be her world in 20 years time. Wow, that's just incredible. That's that's an extraordinary story. I love it. Just, just, I mean, very humbling as well. You know, you you must look at her on a daily basis and then go, wow, <laughs> yeah, just, just beautiful. And and you know, tell us about you know, Ecoside stopping Ecoside International. What are you actually doing? Because um, I, I, I think a lot of people kind of have maybe have heard of the title, but it'd be really interesting to know actually kind of at the nub of it what you actually do. Absolutely. Um, so this campaign was founded um, by myself and, and the lawyer, Polly Higgins, back in 2017. Um, she had already dedicated many years of her life to this particular um, initiative, which is to make serious damage and destruction of nature or ecocide into an international crime. In other words, to to sort of take forward and progress that at the International Criminal Court. Um, and it was quite difficult at the time to find uh, sort of financial support for that work. I mean, there was diplomatic work already in progress with Polly and her team working with climate vulnerable states like the Pacific Islands of Vanuatu, mm-hmm. for example, and others. Um, and we decided to sort of pool our, our, our resources, if you like, in terms of the environmental campaigning side and the legal side and actually make a public campaign. Um, and it's actually grown incredibly fast and particularly over the last couple of years. And I think it's something to do with a number of aspects. One is that, you know, these reports that have been coming out internationally that really spelling out how how difficult the situation is that we're in as, as a civilization in terms of climate emergency, in terms of ecological crisis. And so that's been becoming much more evident. But also there is an aspect of the civil mobilizations as well. So the, the school strikes um, inspired by Greta Thunberg, but also Extinction Rebellion, which began in the UK and is now all over the world. Um, and other movements like the Sunrise Movement in, in the US or Stop the Mangamese in Africa. Um, 
you know, where effectively those actions have kind of opened up the media discussion so that, you know, information that scientists have been trying to get across for many years, that activists in particular areas have been trying to get across for many years, you know, are now finally um, being heard in the mainstream. Um, and that's that's really been very interesting to see. And of course, there's also been um, a big growth of, of interest at the political level in this, because I think one thing that's really clear, and I think that um, at the COP talks this year, that's going to be very much front and center, is this fact that, you know, while there's plenty of goodwill and ambition, the actual level of action in terms of moving towards what we need to do to both to reduce emissions and to prevent damage to ecosystems is just not happening. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for us, this this whole concept of creating a criminal law, you know, gives gives a kind of hard stop parameter that can be could be exactly what's needed to actually start shifting the steer towards the direction that it needs to go in a more enforceable way. Yeah. And and, and I just I mean it's it, when I first heard about your work, I was kind of like, that's so cool because no one is 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 you know, before no one was really championing nature, people were talking about it, but actually giving like, you know, natural things like rivers and mountains rights and, and have them legally represented. It's just extraordinary, you know, to, 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 to actually go there. And, and you know, we, we, we forget, I mean, with the climate emergency, you know, yes, humanity is affected, but but so is every other living thing on this planet. I mean, that's what we're taking down with us. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary when you think about it. And, and I think that one of the things that people perhaps, um, you know, when, when the focus is so much on the climate crisis um, is, is kind of perhaps not noticing so much what the root causes are, because, it, you know, it's not just about emissions reduction. It's not all just about carbon. You know, we can reduce our emissions as much as we like, but if we carry on actually trashing nature at the level that we do, um, we're not going to be able to solve that crisis or to to even kind of make a dent in, in, in what's happening, because we're not looking at the root causes. I mean, the climate crisis is the result, you know, possibly among other things, but what a, a key cause is actually serious destruction of nature over many, many decades. Yes. Um, and so unless... Exactly, absolutely systematic yes. destruction. And, you know, and, and a lot of our global um, sort of economy is built on practices that are currently, you know, permitted, um, but which at their worst actually create serious damage to nature. And it's interesting that you brought up the rights of nature thing because... Um, we, we, we don't work directly with rights of nature, but what we do is very complementary. So in the same way as, you know, your basic human right is the right to life, what protects that right is the fact that killing you is a crime. In other words, to take that life is a crime. Um, and so, you know, we see ecocide and rights of nature in a similar relationship. So, uh, but, but um, although that, you know, there, I mean, rights of, the rights of nature movement is actually very broad, I mean, across the world. And there are now probably, tw I think there are 20 jurisdictions around the world that have some form of rights um, for nature in very, usually very specific instances, like particular landscapes or particular rivers or that, that kind of thing. Um, whereas what we're aiming for is something much more, uh, in a sense, more surgically precise, but also with very, very much broader impact. So um, in the sense that if you go for an international level crime, which is, which is what we aim at, and what now, you know, 16 
member states of the International Criminal Court are already talking about this at parliamentary or government level. So this is not just a pie in the sky idea. This is something that has already got a lot of momentum. Um, but, but of course, to go for something at the international level like that, you potentially have the ability to impact many jurisdictions at once, because, of course, any state that ratifies it must also include it in their own domestic law. So it's, it's a very efficient way to sort of create a ground rule across jurisdictions. But also it's hugely symbolic. And, and, and that's actually really important. It, it's, it has that possibility to kind of shift the way that we think about nature, because, you know, the mindset that is currently dominating our global system, which is ultimately comes from the Western canon, you know, goes back hundreds of years and is very um, sort of divisive and separating. So we tend to think of, you know, nature as something unruly that we should control and or that we can use as a resource. Um, So, you know, we set ourselves kind of above nature, if you like. And and we don't acknowledge how deeply, deeply dependent we actually are upon nature. Oh, completely for everything we eat, wear, breathe. I mean, like it's exactly. just nuts, right? <laughs> exactly. So uh, so I think that there's there's a way in which if you if you say that damaging nature or effectively committing ecocide is on a par with a war crime or with genocide. What you're saying is that damage to nature is equivalent to damage to people, is as bad as damage to people. And that's not something that's currently um, part of our kind of cultural mindset. So, you know, I mean, I'll give you a really simple example. You're not going to go to a government and say, can I have a permit to kill 500 people for my new infrastructure project? I mean, it, it literally wouldn't even cross your mind. You know, it's criminally wrong it's also criminally insane of course um but also there's there's such a profound taboo around damaging people that it literally won't cross your mind but you can go to a government and get a permit for you know a fishing license and an oil extraction license a mining permit you know all of these kinds of things which actually at their worst create really serious damage so we don't yet have that kind of cultural uh, repulsion from damaging nature, and we need it. It's actually healthy to have that taboo there. And and if if we if we create um, uh, you know criminal liability for acts that, that that threaten nature in that way, then we start to create that kind of moral bridge. We start to create that that sort of shift in mindset. It's you know it's not like it's necessarily going to fix everything overnight. I mean, clearly you know murders still happen even though murders are crime. But can you imagine if murder wasn't a crime? I mean, you know, this is this this is this is the kind of these these are these are the boundaries we're talking about. It's very different to just saying, you know, here's a regulation. You can use this much of this toxin. It's actually much more foundational than that. You know, it's saying if you seriously damage nature, that makes you a serious criminal. That's a a different kind of ballpark. But in a sense, it is murder of of humans as well, because if you if if you if you systematically destroy, you know, ecology and fishing and, 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 and have oil spills and stuff like that. I mean, you take people out. I mean, you do, you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, it's just a, a different label and it's just a kind of like further away. Oh, oops. You know, the kind of chain of events. You know? Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is absolutely a human rights issue as well. Um, and, and, and of course it, the ecocide as a phenomenon in terms of destruction, you know, often affects, communities that are you know more that that, you know that don't have the same voice at the global level level so you know communities from the global south um communities of color you know so so many different um 
communities where the decisions are not necessarily made in those spaces, but they absolutely directly affect those people. So it is hugely relevant to that as well. And, 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 and you know, I wanted to ask you really about that. You know, why is the inclusion of women and underrepresented minorities at the decision-making table so important? It's, it's absolutely fundamental, um, not least because, um, I mean, and there's, there's been an, quite a bit of work done on this about how, um, for example, the climate crisis disproportionately affects women, um, but also it disproportionately affects communities, especially in the global south, where already, I mean, for example, think of some of these Pacific islands, which are already effectively going underwater, you know, in terms of, you know, there's a very immediate existential um, aspect to the climate and ecological crisis for so many of these communities. So having those voices at the table is going to make a huge difference. And it, it, we already know that it makes a difference in terms of um, the, the kind of, you know, the well-being of a population. It makes a difference in terms of how, how likely people are to engage in conflict. You know, all of these things have already been sort of been shown to be affected positively by um, the inclusion of women at the decision-making table. Um, and of course, bringing in the voices that are not normally heard is, is absolutely key in this. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the things that our campaigners specifically sort of grown up around because it is dedicated to supporting those climate vulnerable states. And actually the um, countries like Vanuatu and the Maldives that specifically called for ecocide to be considered as a, as a crime at the ICC would not have been able to do that if we hadn't financially and strategically and legally been able to support their voice to be heard there because Pacific Islands were simply not attending the International Criminal Court because it's, you know, it's in Western Europe and they're on the other side of the world. You know, and so I think it's, yeah, it's absolutely fundamental. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you talked about Vanasu um, in the Maldives. What are the other kind of cases that you're, you're representing currently? I think everybody would be very interested to find out. So it's not strictly speaking cases, because obviously we're talking about a law that's not yet in place. So what we're, we're actually ultimately building support for the, you know, the, the addition of a law to a list that are already there. So effectively, there are four international crimes already in place, which are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and the crime of aggression. And we're aiming to add ecocide to that list. Um, but to give you an idea of the number of countries that are actively talking about this, either at parliamentary or at government level, um, I'm actually just going to pull it up now so that I can read them out so that I don't get them wrong. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we've, we're, there are all, there's already a discussion in all of these countries, so I'm going to just do them in alphabetical order, Bangladesh, Brazil, Bolivia, Belgium, Canada, Chile, Finland, France, Luxembourg, the Maldives, Mexico, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, the UK and Vanuatu. Um, wow. So those are all member states of the ICC. And of course, they're all diff in different, uh, different points in that conversation. Yeah. Some of them are just saying we're watching this closely. Some of them have got actual bills going through Parliament where they're actually looking at potentially addressing this uh, legislatively in their own countries. Some of them have already done so. Like, for example, um, France and Belgium. Um, France has already um, included the terminology of ecocide in its own national law, although it's, it's probably a less strong version than we would expect at the international level. But they've also said that they're going to report back to their parliament about supporting the international crime as well. Belgium has already um, said in their official statement to the ICC, um, which is the International Criminal Court, 
that they believe this is a useful conversation for those states to be having over the coming years. So, you know, there are kind of different levels of commitment, but there's, it's certainly a very live conversation on the international stage now. Amazing. Well, <laughs> all, all down to, to, to you and, 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 and obviously, dear Polly. And, you know, what I wanted to, you know, because people will be kind of going, well, this is great. <laughs> what can I do to help? You know, so what's your kind of top tip for those listening who want to start somewhere? How, how can they help? What can they actually do, Jojo, to, to, to push this forward? Well, first and foremost, well, there's two things I like to say. One is that um, uh, our, our um, organization works almost as a kind of central communications hub for what is actually a growing global movement. So there's no way on this planet that I would say it's all down to me and Polly, for example. You know, there is actually there's a huge range of people working on this across the world in different um, contexts. So I would absolutely not take the credit for that. All, all, all we would probably take the credit for is joining some dots and bringing all of that together, because um, that that is absolutely what needs to happen, of course, for this to move forward. In terms of what listeners can do, I would absolutely obviously recommend going to our website, which is stopecoside.earth. Um, and we have an at now menu, which is quite long. So there's a whole bunch, you know, there's, a re- there's something for everyone there in terms of what you're prepared to do, whether it's, you know, whether it's giving it, you know, jo- join the campaign, give a talk. Um, but the very most basic thing is talk about ecocide. And the reason I say that is that it's a relatively new word. I mean, it's been around for a few decades, but in terms of the the kind of public discourse around it, it's really quite um, just pick, picking up momentum now in the last few years. So talk about ecocide. And apart from anything else, it's a word that really encapsulates what is happening to our planet right now. And, and you know, everybody, I think, has a sense that nature is being damaged in so many different ways. And I think bringing it all together under this, this term, which is literally means killing one's home. And, you know, effectively, you know, you know, economy is management of the home, ecology is knowledge of the home, you know, ecocide is killing one's home. And we, we use the, you know, eco to re- represent nature and represent the planet because that is our home. Yes. And, and so there's something about that word that has, that kind of encapsulates that. And I think once people understand the word, there is a kind of automatic moral response. You know, that's wrong. That shouldn't be happening. And, and that happens across the board and where that conversation is happening we know from our experience because we know who the politicians are contacting us you know and the diplomats and and and, you know corporate leaders and and all sorts of people contacting us is where they're hearing that conversation so we know that that really makes a really concrete difference so if you do nothing else include ecocide into your conversation and talk about it and go to our website look at all the other things you can potentially do to support wonderful and you're you're doing some very exciting events at at cop 26 so are you able to share you know what you're up um, I'd love to. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're doing, running a few different events. Um, you know, we're running some focused on the legal, some focused on the political, but also um, interesting one about, um, you know, ecocide law and finance about how and, and, and business about how having this new parameter in place can really help to. I mean, and I say this as a, as a former entrepreneur myself, is that when you have a clear limit, often that can really unleash creativity. So we do see this as a kind of carrot, not just a stick. You know, it's, it's a kind of parameter that has people see it coming over the horizon, which it definitely is. And to say, well, if that's coming in a few years time, what do I need to do in my sector, in my business, you know, to be able to, you know, address this and actually steer in a direction that's healthy in terms of uh, interaction with nature. So that's, that's one aspect. We're also launching a wonderful concept um, around uh, Friday afternoon think tanks. And this, this came up because, 
um, what we realized, somebody asked me, what would you suggest a government do from their budgetary point of view in terms of supporting this? And I said, well, you know what, during COVID, you know, during the pandemic, there was so much money shelled out by government to support businesses that weren't able to operate and so on. You know, it would probably be wildly, um, you know, cheaper in comparison um, to be supporting. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that. That's brilliant that they did that. But it just shows that governments can act when they need to. Um, And we would propose something like supporting every business, every sector, every school as well. I mean, literally every workplace and every educational institution to spend a few hours a week actually addressing how would they approach this law and how would they actually dedicate their Fridays to the future, which is, of course, what the, the school strike movement is, is, is ultimately, ultimately, yeah, Fridays for Future. I mean, imagine if we actually responded to Fridays for Future in a serious way um, and, and to, to, to take that inc- absolutely, under, yeah, completely understandable and absolutely important call that um, you know, our youth are making across the world saying, you know, pay attention to what is going on here. Right. And yet our actual schools, I mean, gosh, I talked to a secondary school for my daughter recently and asked them what they were doing about climate crisis. And they said, well, you know, bit in geography, bit in citizenship, but really we're just trying to get them through their exams. And yeah, I just thought, I oh my it. God, I mean, you know, this is, this is so inadequate. Yeah. How, how well equipped are these kids to face what's what's coming? I mean, it, it, it you know, it's just like they would need to be learning permaculture and God knows what exactly. Else. I mean, you know, it, it, it's that it's that thing of you know. It, is it any wonder that their schools that they're striking? Is it any wonder that they're saying, you know, pay attention to what's happening, do something? So yeah, I I, I think we, you know we figure that that um, actually dedicating a few hours on a Friday across the board, you know, the whole of society, government, education, could do far worse than actually dedicating their Fridays to it. I so agree. And, I, and one of the things I've been encouraged is like reverse mentoring is make sure that you, you know, every government official and, and like business leader should be reverse mentored by a, by a young person. <laughs> so they really, you know, there needs to be a, a, a dialogue. And I think it's a fantastic idea. I'm all in. <laughs> I'll definitely do that with you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And sorry, and I think there was one other thing you were up to as well, because I think there were four events. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, God, we're doing an incredible event, actually, on the uh, 8th of, um, of November, which is um, called Protecting Mother Earth. And it's about sacred guardianship and ecocide law. So that brings together amazing indigenous voices um, mm-hmm. of, of um, leaders from the Amazon and Mexico and um, North America and all different areas of the world um, to bring those indigenous voices to that concept of how do we protect mother mother earth how do we protect nature um and of course there's there's a a really an amazing kind of synergy really between what we're trying to do we believe um and and those perspectives because you know i mean indigenous communities only make up five percent of the world's population but they're actually the guardians of up to 80 percent of the world's biodiversity and that's not a coincidence that is also you know to do with that understanding of the interdependence of humanity and nature. Um, and, you know, there's this kind of fundamental, well, it's a fact, really, you know, you damage Mother Earth, there are consequences. And in a way, what we're trying to do legally is to, you know, is to reflect that in the legal system, because it's, 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 it's a kind of, you know, it's a fundamental reality that is not currently 
reflected adequately in our legal system. So there is a, an amazing, amazing synergy there, I believe. Uh, yeah, and and of course the you know the indigenous populations tend to also manage for seven generations ahead as well. So they're not even looking at the young people that are standing in front of them, but 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 the, the ones to come. And I, I I just love that sense of of guardianship and the fact that they want to pass things off almost in a better way than they found them. And I think we've seriously forgotten that, which is, is, is an absolute tragedy. Absolutely. I think it's I think it's going to be a really important discourse because, you know, we have to bridge to a new way of doing things. Um, and there's something about this particular legal intervention, which is quite strategic, almost acupunctural. It's like a very, very specific thing. But it opens up such a, a range of possibilities and 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 and, a, and different ways of, of 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 thinking and approaching our our economic practices and our you know our lifestyles. Well, I mean, Jojo, I mean, I'm just in awe of you. Um, it's just incredible, and I'm so proud of everything you're doing. And 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 I wish you a very good COP26 and and the best of. Of, of, of luck and, and courage with everything you've got on your plate and and you know maybe if you could just mention what your website was again so in case people missed it absolutely so it's just stop ecocide.earth um, and you can find so much more information there as well as things that you can do and yeah and and, and you you will also be able to um, attend the COP events online um, and there will soon be a schedule up there. So probably by the time you hear this, it will be up there and you can go and, and, and check out our COP events there. So yeah, really fantastic to be on with you, Sarah. And yeah, thanks oh, for having me. It's just a joy. And let's talk more about Fridays. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. Bojo, take huge care and, and, and best of luck with it all. And, and I can't wait to hear how it goes. Oh, thank you so much. Wasn't Jojo incredible? I mean, she is just extraordinary. And I really encourage you to look up Stop Ecocide and to support them through your social media or even you know, with financial donations. I mean, the work that they are doing is for the future of all humanity and all living things on Earth. Tomorrow we have an, another amazing guest, the um, incredible Paul Pullman, my former boss, who is now an author of the book Net Positive. This interview took place in very special circumstances. We were directly impacted by climate change. and We actually had to abandon our first podcast because I had a fire on a hillside next to me and, and Paul had an extraordinary storm come through which took out all his electricity, the internet and unfortunately his car. So uh, I think you'll find this gripping listening and, and, and very much look forward to you tuning in.